This is Dr. Susan Kolb with Temple of Health Radio Show. Today I'm pleased to have back as my guest Nancy Orlin Weber. She is the author of a new book put out in 2018, The Life of a Psychic Detective. I had the pleasure of interviewing Nancy probably about five to seven years ago. We had a great discussion about um, being a psychic detective and and some of the really uh, amazing things she has been uh, a, a part of. And um, I'm really happy she wrote this book. Um, this book is really important for anybody interested in the process of intuitive work in crime and actually intuitive work in general, a lot of really good uh, principles in the book as well as great stories. Welcome, Nancy. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Dr. Susan. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Yes, yes. So, um would you give our listening audience a little bit of your history? I know that you were a nurse before your psychic uh, um, job, but um, would you just give a little bit of your history and how you were introduced into the um, the field of becoming a psychic detective? Thank you. I'd love to. Uh, yes, I was a nurse. During nursing, I learned the importance of the gifts and was able to apply it. Fast forward, I went into my own private practice, and about five years later, I moved to New Jersey, and I had a child in karate. I enrolled him in a local school, and apparently people knew that I also uh, worked with finding missing animals and communicated with animals. And Mm -hmm. the woman who taught him the... uh, teacher of the karate, stopped me one day and she said, I see that you're a psychic because it was posted in the newspaper. Can you Mm -hmm. help me? I said, help you. She said, well, I'm a police officer in town and we had a rape uh, that we're not sure what to do. And as she said that, I had an image Now, we all get images through dreams, daydreams, night dreams, uh, Mm -hmm. all kinds of things, right? I've learned not to dismiss them as foolish as they may be. And this one was a particular one of a red-headed, freckled guy. And I gave her the description. And she said, I'm going to give it to my superior officer. May I have him speak with you? I said, sure. The next week, I take my son to karate, and there's this man in the gym where it was, leaning against the wall, point poking, you know, kind of crooking his finger for me to come over. And I walked mm-hmm. over, and he introduced himself as a detective, and said, "Would you please tell me what you saw?" And I repeated it. He said, mm-hmm. "I'd like to come over with my partner, two detectives, tomorrow and see you." I said, sure. Now, I had never worked with anybody like this before. Personality within myself, being shy, and yet the moment when an opportunity like that came to be of service, I wasn't shy. Mm -hmm. I took the risk. I didn't care if I was right or wrong. I figured if it could help at all, this would be fine. So the next day... They came over and sat about, across from me about 10 feet away there on a couch, and I'm on my chair in my office, and they look at me and said, we have a problem with your description. I said, why? And they said, well, we have two men. And I, mm-hmm. I remember feeling angry. I jumped up, and I limped across with a very heavy limp on mm-hmm. one side. And then I went and sat down again and looked at them. They said, how did you know one of them had that limp? I said, it was simple. I became him. Now, speaking like that is not my normal way of speaking ever. (laughs) Nor is it my normal way to be adamant that I'm so right. Uh, It wasn't me. I still, to today, if you ask me questions about how that occurred, I can't answer it. I don't know. I don't know if I if I linked into this man who really needed 
to tell the truth because it was not just a rape. It was a rape murder. And not just a mm. rape doesn't mean rape is insignificant. I've been a crime victim. I know. So, I mean, it was rape murder. And that was it. They went back and he confessed. And that's how there I started another working. Thing. There was another yeah. thing. I'm jumping forward in your book, but sure. you were at a stop sign and you were supposed to turn left to go somewhere. And instead, oh. you turned right oh, oh, oh. all of a sudden, very <laughs> out of character, and then later found out that you would have probably endangered your child yeah. with gunshot oh, right he would have been near dead. the bank. But what I wanted to say is that I've experienced this too, and I think the limp may be maybe a little bit less because you weren't in physical danger, but when we're, something can take over our body and have us do quick actions physically without even thinking about doing it if we're in danger. Dr. Alice Miller wrote a book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, and there was one piece that stuck out for me, and it said people who have had uh, a lot of trauma early in life develop the antennas for the next moment. The, the antennas are always, as you are saying, the instinctual takeover. And right. I don't know why it becomes more of a universal quality, not only for our sake or our, uh, my son's sake in that case, but uh, mm-hmm. for others. And I think that is the choice we make between not only accepting being a victim for life or not, but also deciding rather than rather than distrusting the world, and maybe we do when we've been victims, also mm-hmm. the ability to make a difference becomes, for many of us, you, me, and loads of others, in small ways and big ways, it becomes very important to help change things. And I think that's the driving force that takes over in us, that opens us to the quick response that is not Mm -hmm. thinking at all. Uh, I know in all the cases I've ever worked, if I think, I know I'm in the wrong direction. Right. You have to stay focused and with a blank mind, right? Yeah. I also also think that... You know, it was very, very important. This was your first real demonstration of this. And even though it wasn't in character for you, maybe what was channeled through you was what was needed for these detectives to pay attention. I think so, too. I totally agree that there's a funny piece that happened many years later, maybe five years ago. And Mm -hmm. we were filming for... County, I don't even know. I think it was the Sci-Fi Channel, uh, Paranormal Witness mm-hmm. through the eyes of a killer. Right. Pretty sure. And George Duker, who is an amazing human being, uh, he had worked with us. Or it could be another case. I can't remember. Sorry. But George, during com- during the break, I had just heard him speak like I was this amazing thing that did this amazing whatever. And I said, George. How come you believe me so much? I don't understand. I understand I was right about that particular one, but still, I don't get it. And he said, well, you may not remember during that case. It was the Rachel Domas uh, murder in Long Valley, New Jersey. And he said, during that case, I turned to you and I said, I have another case I'd like you to take a look at. And he told me the case. And I quieted down, and I looked at him afterwards, and I said, I don't get anything. He said, that's why I believe you. <laughs> and I thought, really? this is getting interesting. Yes, because it's just what you were saying. I've got goosebumps mm-hmm. because one never, we're there for the right thing at the right moment. We, we are the messengers, mm-hmm. and everybody is. So when I'm the messenger, for a case, great. If I'm not, I steer clear, I'm hoping. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're just, right, yeah. I think what you said is so, so true of pretty much everything we do. And it's almost like at the soul level, these things we say, because I've blurted out things to people that I would have never said that Mm -hmm. were extremely life-changing for them. 
I, I mean, I was embarrassed when I did it because I said, oh, my God, I would never say anything like that. And then the, the person said, oh, my God, you're so right, you know, like it's so right, you know, on and on and on about how accurate it was. And, of course, it's not me even saying it. You know, I'm just – so we can say things, and in your case of the limp, you can become somebody else and actually mimic a physical de- a defect in front of people that need to see that. Um, you can – like if there's a fire – you can rip everything off so that the fire stops. You see, these are the things that um, you don't even think about what you're doing. I mean, there's no conscious um, acknowledgement at all. You've already done it, and then, and then you're shocked that you even did it. And until you actually experience something like that, you you don't even believe it's possible because we all want to think we're in control of our actions and our words and our deeds, you know. But it's interesting. Wise words. We may not be. <laughs> like to, well, very wise words. And when you speak of how important it is for us to recognize there are some things we cannot control even about ourselves, particularly if we've desired to relieve suffering. Uh, yeah, to be of service, I, right. Yeah, to yep, be a channel. It Like, it's exactly. almost like, you know, those people that channel yogic positions without, you know, they mm-hmm. go into certain weird yogic positions um, and don't know why they do that. that. That's what, you know, that that's an example of that. that um, yes, very Your body much can so. contort and twist and you're, you're not consciously in control of it. So I think that's an mm-hmm. exercise in what what your limp was. (laughs) I think so, too. I think that uh, since we're truly all connected, it's at what level do we want that connection? And as long as I understand that and I suspend all judgment of both Mm -hmm. the other people involved, the situation, and the judgment of its impact on me, I think mm-hmm. the issue some people have, because I believe so many people can do these things and are afraid to feel that way, and yet if they recognize it is not yours, yet mm-hmm. the energy allows you, not your personal, but uh, not your personal energy, more your soul energy mm-hmm. can take that information, utilize it, and let it go. Take that information, utilize, let it go as a process. Mm -hmm. And it's why I could look at something not knowing and say, shot in the right temple uh, Mm -hmm. and at close range. And they said, how do you know? And I said, because I just felt it. However, when I feel that, right, like you're explaining, we don't, if we can really suspend our emotional interest in Mm -hmm. controlling the situation, controlling what we feel, controlling what really happens in the world, controlling. I think that's a big piece you point out, a huge piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were, I kind of interrupted your story. You were limping in front of these detectives, and what what came of that? They came, they went back, and they interviewed him again. And Mm -hmm. when they interviewed him this time, what happens a lot of times, particularly with the detective, I worked with 10 years on all unsolved cases, fresh, uh, not every uh, fresh case, but he was a high crime we worked. When he went back, he had more belief that he was aiming in the right direction. And that comes across. That's important. (laughs) Very important. And he understood that. He was, yeah, yeah, I I once asked him, why do you trust me so much? Early on, this is like 1981, we had worked on dozens of cases. And he said, Mm -hmm. because if I have no leads or a thousand leads, I'd rather take something that somebody is willing to use their intuition on and Go mm-hmm. with it and see what happens. So well, yeah, you need to. I mean, the they don't they don't have anywhere else to get information unless they get it through their own intuition. Actually, they are following their own intuition when they call you. <laughs> exactly right, and he understood that about himself. Yeah, he did. Which yeah. right, it made it an easy person to work with. 
Well, you know, it's just like I've I've had some uh, detectives um, through my patients mostly, but some detectives that were very dishonest and uh, uh, did things with evidence that they shouldn't have, like even uh, illegal stuff with evidence in order to get a conviction for an innocent person. I mean, when you really get exposed to the corruption and the ego-driven need to be right with some of the prosecutors and detectives, it becomes a very, very scary thing to understand that there's a lot of really innocent people that are put, put in prison. And um, I, you know, well, the, the more project. more of this is coming out on in in the um, in the uh, 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 like the Netflix and and Prime, they have whole series about people falsely accused. And when you really study those cases, it's it's the egos need to be right, and and combined with an unethical tendency to fudge things, which you know is very easy to do when you're in control of the crime scene. So, um, added that, yeah, added that I, everything you're saying, <laughs> there were two instances where I came across very seriously and it always mm-hmm. concerned me that there is not across every state, a, uh, real psychological evaluation of people before they get into law enforcement as a serious issue. Because you can spot some of it, the lack of ethics, mm-hmm. the lack of integrity, uh, etc. I worked one that was, well, both of them were quite serious. One mm-hmm. ended up being in prison for life as a result, a police officer, a well-deserved life imprisonment. Another was a prosecutor, and I've always felt that there needs to be more told about all of it. And that one was really, I, you know, what you're pointing out, so I'm skipping to say, because the, the idea comes to me again and again that the messenger, when we're in a position to know, mm-hmm. uh, what do we do with it? And that's been sometimes the most important key because things happen as you're saying. I mean, absolutely evidence. Uh, I saw an evidence room I couldn't believe. It looked like some cyclone hit it. You'd never find a thing in it. So mm-hmm. how could you do that? I worked on a case that is a very well-known one, and evidence got lost, but nobody's talking about it, mm-hmm. etc. You know. So I look at all that, and then I look at Something behind it, which I find, for me, personally, fascinating. There was, in the case you and I both had spoken years ago, where James Kadadich was known to murder two women here in New Jersey. He was also known to murder two people in Florida before that. Mm -hmm. During the case, I worked with two detectives. One was the captain of homicide from a neighboring town. They were partnered on the task force. I told them a lot of other things about the background of the case, including that he tried to run down others, including one of the victim's sisters in car, mm-hmm. et cetera, and that the five towns knew of him, why wasn't anything done, all kinds of things that never got mentioned. Mm-hmm. Years go by, it's on TV. I have a bookkeeper who walks in one day and she said to me, this is very strange. I didn't know you worked that case. I said, yeah, I did. She said, do you know I I worked as the right-hand woman to the father of the victim, the second victim. Now, the second victim, Hmm. very interesting because the connecting links for her, everywhere I went, people knew me and knew her. It was really weird. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I could feel it. My beautician, my uh, I'm a minister, I was doing a wedding, the owner of the catering place said my husband mm-hmm. got the, C, the call from the CB trucker. The involvement of everybody all over in odd ways. So the bookkeeper's looking at me and she said, well, you know, 
the actual chief of prosecution, not the one who led the investigation, was the best friend of the father. And the father was a freeholder. And he was going to write a book because the prosecutor, the head, gave him all the details, every police report, everything that happened. Mm-hmm. And she said, I was the one who transcribed it. And then he decided not to publish the book. He decided instead to open up the Deidre O'Brien Center in Morristown, New Jersey, for a, per- a different kind of legacy. I said, mm-hmm. oh, okay. She said, so I asked him, what, what do you want me to do with the book? And he said, do whatever you want. And she hands me a gray box filled with all of it. And I am sitting with all of it. And what you said before, I want to say, I always wanted to title it Ego Kills. Yeah. Yeah, because it's proof. It's proof that the investigating prosecutor never did a homicide case before, let alone a serial murderer. Mm-hmm. Five towns did call in, and five towns he blew off yep. before the second woman was killed. Mm-hmm. And so I totally, I'm sitting here saying, okay, Dr. Susan, what would you do? <laughs> what would you do with all this? I don't know. Um, it needs to be made into a TV show so that people can understand how the system can fail. I mean, these people are paid. I mean, these are paid, you know, prosecutors, paid detectives to completely blow off that much evidence unless, I mean, do you think he was being paid off in any way? It doesn't seem like that would be possible. No. No, I know it was his ego. Yeah, it has to be ego because there's no money in I mean, it can't. There are many, many instances in our justice system of people being paid off, especially Mm -hmm. at the judge level. But, you know, that wouldn't be possible in this case. But, you know, the, the idea that people in positions of responsibility where when they drop the ball, other people get murdered because this is what happened in this case. Right. It's scary. People need to know that. Exactly. I totally agree. So if you ever get a thought about it more, let me know. Because I've been sitting with Well, I don't know. They need a lot of content. You know, Netflix and and Prime content. So, you know, maybe somebody listening knows a a film company that would want to do something. You just, you are so funny. You are channeling. A message because yesterday, somebody I know for many years is working mm-hmm. uh, on a project for Netflix. So, yeah. thank you. Okay. Well, they need content because they, they um, and good content, you know. the That's why these, these shows that um, I mentioned before about the details about how innocent people get um get locked mm. up um i i once had a patient who was a federal judge and i just asked him out of the blue i said do you believe in capital punishment and he said yes in in theory yes but practically no he said i was on the committee that reviewed a lot of the cases when dna evidence came in and it turned out uh. that one third of the people we put to death in georgia were innocent and he said the 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 main thing is eyewitnesses Eyewitnesses believe that they're telling the truth. Therefore, juries believe them. But eyewitnesses are notoriously incorrect. Mm-hmm. So it was in many cases, before DNA evidence was admissible or even possible, eyewitnesses put people in um, situations where capital punishment was, was at play. So we, need, I mean, people need to know this stuff. They need to know. And, yes. and then, of course, you know this, um, but the listening audience may not. If you want to kill, if you want to frame somebody for murder, it is very easy to do so with DNA evidence. You just have, you, you transplant them that, yeah, you transplant it, you, you, Pick a time where they don't have an alibi. You put the DNA evidence there. They have motive. They don't have an alibi. And there's evidence at the crime scene. Police don't talk about this, but 
it is very, very important to understand that you can frame people for murder very easily now. Uh, in a lot of ways, you can set people up. Sure. There is no easy answer because it is no different from anything else, unfortunately, that it's like hackers, mm-hmm. you know, no different. Uh, people who get a new firewall, get a new whatever to stop everything, mm-hmm. and then, whoops, it's pretty easy uh, for the hacker to be excited because, oh, I got a new challenge. <laughs> it's a contest. Right. It's competition. Right. And I think yeah. behind it all, what you're also saying, it reminds me that the when in a country like ours, when we see things going on in children or families and we don't stop to make a difference or help out or suggest something, I remember telling a woman whose son, she was part of a case I worked on where she reported something. And it turned out when I met with her, I could see that her son was trouble, and he was probably about 9 or 10, and she had a daughter about Mm -hmm. 14. And I said, I have a ridiculous question. I see your son with a scissor chasing your daughter and meaning it and trying to cut her up. She said, yes, he has done that. I said, what are you doing? She said, well, what can I do? I said, wait a minute. (laughs) And so we had this discussion, and I'm hoping it made a difference for her to do something because Mm -hmm. everything is hush-hush until something dramatic happens or somebody dies. And that's too often around. And I think it's one of the things that the officers you're talking about and the judges you're talking about, where what I said before about ego and what you've mentioned about the control, to me it always goes back to you have a choice when you are wounded as a child or as an adult in trauma, seriously, physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever the wounds are, however they occurred. And we don't know what, but people need to step in. I think, you know, we don't have the kind of wonderful community help. And too often, I lived on a road in Brooklyn, a small little street. The corner was the captain of the police or the chief or whatever. His son was the druggie who would bang on our doors Mm -hmm. when his father wasn't around. The minute his father was gone, he was a nasty kid, maybe 15, 16, scared everybody, demanding money so he can go get what he wanted or steal from his father's anything. And his father Mm -hmm. always let him. So I looked at that when I was a kid, and I went, you're all nuts here. How do you Mm -hmm. let somebody get away with anything when they're young and teach them that it's the right thing to do? They're going to grow up and be maybe the next captain of police, maybe the next whatever, the judge or anybody else, or the next murderer who... uh, whatever it is, we have to help them when at the beginning. We have to help them prenatally. We have to help them right. as they grow. Everybody does. We have to act like we're all part of the same tribe. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, they did some studies in prison about heavy metal toxicity, uh, mercury yep. causing anger mm-hmm. and high lead levels causing you know develop, developmental deformities. And uh, they found that... Um, it was very, very important to uh, correct nutritional deficiencies and detox heavy metals in order to have the the control back, you know, the self control back sure. in the in the prison population. And yet, you know, even though these studies are done, I'm sure that very little is being done practically. Uh, Absolutely. That, to help Absolutely. these people, um, Doctor Alex gain control did a lot back. Of this study. Yeah. Right. They did a study on food in prisons, Dr. Alan mm-hmm. Schaus, nutritionist, but well, maybe 30 years ago, more than mm-hmm. that, 40, 35, somewhere around there, where they had a drop of 
between 30 and 40 percent recidivism. That meant that 30 or 40 percent of the population did not come back as opposed to them always coming back. Mm-hmm. Huge drop in one year. Cutting out sugar, cutting out crap. Simple right. as can be. Yeah. And get and who learns anything mm-hmm. about that? You look at hospitals, you look at prisons, you look at institutions, large ones. And most of them, by and large, buy cheap food, which will contain heavy metal from the soil. Yep. And carbs and sugar. <laughs> yeah. It's cheaper exactly. than protein right. and fat. Oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So we're looking, yeah. you know, where do you start? You start at, for me, I'm practical, so I go, start unburdening, as you're saying, with chelation, detoxing. Start mm-hmm. at the very basics because we can help transform. This country is environmentally so toxic, it's, it's beyond belief. It is, it's, absolutely. Yeah, and the burden, and yet some people, and that's the chicken or egg, you know, it's like I worked with a psychiatrist uh, with his clients, and we would say, mm-hmm. why does one who might be filled with toxins and everything else we're saying about them, and maybe very wounded childhood, et cetera, why does one go on to serve and, and have great ethics and and another one choose to go ahead and do anything they feel like against anybody to get back at the world. And and Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have any answers on that question because I think that question is as old as life is. Yeah, but it it has to do with vibrational level. I mean, your vibrational level when you're born into this world is either high or low. If it's low, then you become susceptible to other influences, be they physical or fourth dimensional. You know, and if your if your vibrations are high, then you become susceptible to things like higher dimensional, you know, the guides and the soul influence, which are going to guide you in the right direction and protect you. Um, so I think it's vibrational. And then our choices, because we all make choices, we have free will, either take us up or down. And we're in a period right now, because we're close to these ascension energies that are coming in, that either you're going up or you're going down. I mean, you're either spiraling down and getting worse and worse and crazier and things are going out of control or you're getting more protected, better, you know, making better choices, having much more spiritual guidance. And I think that's what we're in right now. Uh, and yet the separation I believe that we can the... change things. I do. Yeah. I mean, even if your vibrational energy coming from everything, I don't care what. They did a cord blood study many years ago. They're repeating it mm-hmm. worldwide of uh, petrochemicals in the cord blood as a setup for all known disease oh, in childhood yeah. and early and later on. So, yeah. and, and yet when we speak of vibration and energy, it, it's the same question. Peel back that layer and say, so why is that vibration... Um, despite anything that's happening, bringing them forth well, and why are some coming in with lower, and how do we change mm-hmm. all of it well here? And I think if we, because some of the questions are huge, and as individuals, we need to feel <clears throat> that word again about control. What can we control to make a difference in our own lives and consequently pour that energy into the world better for each of us? And for me, it is always about modeling and self-care, modeling mm-hmm. what I believe as well as I can. And although I am far from perfect self-care, I take a lot of pleasure in doing the right things for my health and my mind and mm-hmm. my spirit and soul. I love taking care of it. So, in, and I think that, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I wanted to um, have you tell the story. Uh, we talked about this before we went on the air. The story about um, when you had your uh, spiritual group at your house, mm-hmm. and you were in the midst of uh, running down a serial killer that um, was going to kill a gun. Would you would you mind telling that story? Because I think that's a powerful example of how not only are we all connected, but we can feel helpless, but we're not helpless. That story shows us that we do have the ability to, um, 
you know, create change and create um, things that are really miraculous. That was an unusual event, to be sure. Normally, my Thursday night at that time, for 20 years, every Thursday night, I never knew who would show up. I didn't care. It was an open door. And I'd have 15, Mm. 20, 20, 30 people come. That night, I had four of the people I knew best show up, and only Mm. them. And all of them knew I worked with the police because I had been in uniform at times. I wore a badge Mm. at times. And that's all they knew. I wouldn't talk Mm. about it. So I sat with the four of them on the floor, and I said, I am about to tell you something quite confidential. Can I trust you? And I said, of course. I said, okay. So I ran them through the entire scenario that I believed from the beginning, including what they already knew from newspapers. Mm -hmm. And I said, now hold hands with me, and we're all going to focus together. And I said a prayer out loud to God that if it's within the spiritual path of James something itch, couldn't get the middle part, and all concerned, all the women he has harmed and will like to harm continue. If it's within the spiritual path of all, Please bring him the pain he caused others and put him in a position where he can never harm another human being. If it is not, I graciously accept the outcome. And I Mm -hmm. let it go. Right. And then uh, Jimmy Moore was the Captain Homicide Parsippany at the time, and he was the uh, partner to Bill Hughes, who was a detective I worked with in Mount Olive, and Jimmy calls me on the phone, I think a day later. I can't remember the times at this point. And he said, what did you do? I said, what do you mean, what did I do? He said, they caught him. I said, caught who? He said, James Kadadich. And I yelled, that's the name. (laughs) And he said, yes, that is. He said, and yes, they have a hair of Amy Hoffman. They have an, or a drop of blood of Amy Hoffman's and a hair of Deidre O'Brien in the trunk, just like you said she was in the trunk. I said, I know, I know. But they caught him. They said, and Jimmy said, yeah, they caught him. He ran himself off the road, apparently, knifed himself in the back, called the 911 and said, a brown-haired woman, shoulder-length hair, like mine, Ran me mm-hmm. off the road and stabbed me in the back, and that's oh how they got goodness. it. It was self-inflicted wounds. Mm-hmm. So I also think, you know, knowing his history and background, and I know it well now, mm-hmm. that he he had done self-inflicted wounds before. So I think he was hallucinating, not hallucinating, but he could see our. Uh, it's called bilocation. <laughs> yeah, he could see us. Well, really yeah, is. but I'm thinking it wasn't anger at trying to do it. It was an image I had of what he had uh-huh. done to others, and he was right. replaying it, literally mm-hmm. replaying it. Very strange yeah. man. Yeah. So that, yeah, that so was... <laughs> well, that's what I had been doing order, in my personal in life. Yeah, yeah, I had always... When things happened for me um, mm-hmm. poorly, I was in the middle of a I can't remember when this all occurred, but middle of a divorce, had the house, didn't have the money, selling mm-hmm. the house. I walk in, the septic had gone, the electric had gone. And I yeah. just sent up, uh, thank you, God, for any spiritual lessons involved in this. And if it's mm-hmm. within my spiritual path and my children's and all concerned, let it be easy. If it is not, I graciously accept the outcome. Those are the words mm-hmm. I use for pretty much everything in the world mm-hmm. because it settles me. Yeah. 
It allows well, me to live very, with any outcome. It's a very good way to do it, yeah. But you're also guided to do the whole thing with the group. In other words, that was all yes. channeled and guided. So, oh, yeah. I mean, not that we come up with this idea on our own. We don't. We don't. No. But I just no. want the listening audience to understand when you're guided in this way, amazing things can happen. And, of course, that, that serial killer did not go on to stab those other women who were definitely a probable reality, you know, if, if he hadn't been stopped. But the way he was stopped, I mean, that was just amazing. I believe so strongly that everybody has, as you are saying, the gift of letting go and letting God. Right, right. Letting prayer, letting channeling, letting vibrations mm-hmm. come from us from the highest source for the highest good. And everybody mm-hmm. can do that. Everybody can. And the funny thing is, I believe strongly, you know, when I say funny, I mean, people see us as separate and apart from them the same way I'll see somebody sometimes who's so gifted and I'll go, well, I could never do that. And the problem with us is we put those scorecards on ourselves. So we both suggest <laughs> to everybody listening. And they're like walls. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Right. Change the belief by mm-hmm. simply doing it and practicing it and see what happens. I mm-hmm. didn't start out with any belief about any of this whatsoever. I just felt it was so strange. It was like a lightning bolt coming through me as a kid that just blurted mm-hmm. out stuff. Um, and it was all true, and I get that. However, everybody gets their gifts differently, and we all need to have everybody step up. <laughs> we need mm-hmm. this. Open and be awake, awaken to yeah. your own gifts. It's an incredible journey to discover. It is, yeah. I want to tell uh, you a story about something that happened when I was a younger surgeon. They they brought this um, this patient from, he was in his early 20s, from a mental hospital because he kept banging his head on the wall and he had, he had wounds on his forehead. So I was his doctor. And I knew that he had um, he had murdered before. He was in for um, you know schizophrenic homicidal, and, and his parents were well-known Christian televangelists who were really horrified by this whole situation. And he came in with his psychologist and two armed guards shackled to see me. Okay, but I had placed something so that no demonic influences could come into my my area because, of course, you have to keep your your area clean when you're a surgeon and of everything, <laughs> you know, not just uh, germs. Mm-hmm. So uh, when he came in, he had no demonic stuff on him. And so I would not only take care of his wounds, I would do healing. And he really looked forward to coming in because I believe that this was the only time he was free of these influences. So it turned out that he went into Grady Hospital, which you probably heard of, had a, 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 a bowel complications, had surgery, and he ended up dying. So I was in my kitchen eating lunch, and he came to me, and he wouldn't leave me alone until I, I wrote a seven-page letter to a psycho- psychologist, who, by the way, still sends me Christmas cards. It's really interesting. So there's a seven-page letter from him about explaining everything that happened in his life and why it was. And that letter got to his parents. So I, I won't, you know, I won't tell you all the, the things in the letter, but essentially seven pages of information about why he he chose the life that he did. And his parents sent me a wonderful card thanking me so much for that, you know, that revelation about why they had a son who was a killer. Isn't that a beautiful story? It is beautiful because of free you you channeled the freedom for them of guilt. Yes. And the psychologist and, who was baffled by because they don't understand what drives people to do these things. Uh, it's not usually free will. I mean, occasionally it's free will. You you're paid you're an assassin, you're paid money to kill somebody, you kill them. It's, there's no you know, sure. it's all just business. Well, That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the serial killers who are influenced by fourth-dimensional influences because they have low vibrations. They open themselves up to that. Well, Dorothy Otnow did a five-year study on death row many years ago. She was the person Mm -hmm. 
who studied them. And then a friend of mine, Meredith, also did studies on death row. Later on, wrote a book, Ghosts in the... I can't even remember, unfortunately. What they all found, common denominator, which was, again, interesting to apply to what you're saying. Every Mm -hmm. one of them had neurological impairment either prior to birth or shortly after. Being beaten, alcoholic, drug abuse, family, whatever, or just they don't know why. And and, and neurological impairments, uh, uh, all kinds of things. So that led for quirky uh, experiences in life, for sure. Mm -hmm. I worked with somebody who was suicidal from 13 to 23. Many years later, I met her. I performed her wedding. She was quite normal. She had multiple suicide attempts, stayed in institutes for years, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. A quickening of the story. She did everything on unburdening the system in a place that didn't call her a patient. They called her a student. And they taught her to chill out, eat well. She turned out mm-hmm. to be five known diseases. So they never knew it. She was born with an eye-to-brain problem. So when we talk of vibration, we talk about all that, I also have a very strong belief that anybody can open up to their soul. Once they open up to their soul and allow that soul to pour forth the light in them, mm-hmm. they can heal over anything. I agree. Like the guy who wrote the seven-page letter coming through, obviously while mm-hmm. he was grounded on this earth, he could not... He could feel the difference when he walked into your place, your space, right. how safe it was. It was a haven of release yes. where yes. he didn't he didn't have to relate lower. So right. that was the change for him here, only he couldn't do more than that here. He could do more once he left the form. Because right, because he was be, above yeah, he was above the lower aspect of the fourth dimension, so it was no longer influencing him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I find it all, it's always so fascinating. I remember sitting with the psychiatrist I worked with after Mm -hmm. seeing all his patients for the day. We would then, his clients, and we would sit and talk, and I could see every issue he worked on that day Velcroed to his Mm -hmm. energy field. And I went, that's not healthy. You're absorbing everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so the shielding, I think, is... Also a belief system. There are many ways I shield, you know, just naturally. But I believe Mm -hmm. it's also a belief system. If we don't have it, we build it. And then I go back to the It really is out of necessity, though. Now, you you worked as a nurse, so you know how um, energetically uh, dirty the emergency rooms can become because so many people (laughs) die in them. I worked there. There's so much violence and everything. Yeah, so you know. You know. We ought to have... Spiritual cleansers come in and cleanse the energy of ERs. I would say it all depends on, for a lot of people, true attitudes. Uh, mm-hmm. I worked in South Bronx in Fort Apache during the time it was Fort Apache. I think it was the mm-hmm. highest homicide rate in the country, that area. Mm-hmm. And I ran an acute psych unit. I loved it. We had a rare opportunity that we used well and we pretty much broke policy and rules did our thing and made miracles day in day out with acute psychotics in 10 days i was allowed to see whatever i saw in people and act on it and that's where i got to understand the importance of letting your gifts out not hiding them and keeping the vibration high. And I think what you're saying, if you have somebody, at least one person, either in an ER or any place, who mm-hmm. holds the light and knows how important it is, not ego, mm-hmm. not a, knows how important that light is. I had a nurse's aide with me who was like that mm-hmm. also, and a couple of other people in the team. We had 35 members. We had a lot of, some egos, but mostly in service. And when we had mm-hmm. that, uh, it was shocking. It was absolutely shocking yeah. how we broke through people in a matter 
of hours sometimes who have been locked up for murder. One guy locked mm-hmm. up 15 years for 11 strangulations came in. I got to the root of it in about two and a half hours with a psychiatric resident who allowed me to just say and do anything I wanted. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just shocking to see that people don't don't get to tell the truth about themselves. Here was a man who had yeah, been and, tortured. Right. Mm-hmm. But I could see it in the energy field. Those images that are traumatizing don't go away until you deal with no, it. No, they don't. Yeah. Yeah. And that was great so, training for you too because then I you know it. when you went when you joined the police and were looking at those people before they were hospitalized, you could uh, mm-hmm. you could make all those connections, which are very important. I loved it. I always say it was the best teamwork I have ever encountered. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, was- we are coming up on the end of our hour. Um, it's been a great interview, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Oh, I thank you so much, Dr. Susan. This is so beautiful. Thank you. It's so good to speak with like-minded and have people who are opening up themselves or open listening. That's so cool. Thank you. It is. It is. Well, thank you, Nancy. We've been interviewing um, Nancy Orlean Weber, whose book, The Life of a Psychic Detective, is an excellent work full of not just her experiences but the spiritual uh principles behind what she does and uh, just a great book for anybody who is interested in, in intuitive development. Please join us next week for Temple of Health radio show. 